aspect of what it takes to seek reconciliation with another person. There needs to be a recognition, perhaps sorrow and confession about the wrong, the exact nature of the wrong that has been committed. There needs to be where it's possible, and to the degree that it's possible, some restitution made. And there needs to be repentance, a change of behaviour, a changing of acting that follows in a continuing way after, uh, along after it into the future. But so often our attempts at seeking some kind of reconciliation or restoration of our relationships simply stumble and fall at the very first hurdle before we've even really begun, at the recognition stage, at that shared recognition or awareness or confession of the wrong that's actually been done. Exactly what specific wrong has been done or even who has wronged who and in what proportions. Sometimes disagreement or lack of awareness on that point seems to scuttle the whole process of seeking to be reconciled with one another. Uh, in the midst of conflict, you probably, perhaps you've been this person or maybe you've dealt with this person, kind of maybe both. There are those who are perhaps are prickly in the face of any kind of tension between yourself and another person. Or those who perhaps respond when some tension has been pointed out, perhaps they respond manipulatively. Or those who are just unwilling to even give recognition that there is a problem or a difficulty at all. When faced with those kinds of resistance, those kind of obstacles and barriers, Recognising when and what wrong has actually been committed can be a pretty challenging thing to get agreement on. Christians will often find themselves grasping with the question of whether to and exactly how to confront others with the reality of some wrong that has happened. And that brings us to tonight's question, what place does, does rebuking, admonishing, reproving what place might these forms of more confronting kinds of speech have in our relationships with one another, and especially in the restoring of damaged relationships? Uh, I've heard quite a few preachers blame our culture's idolising of tolerance and affirmation as being the thing that really makes a mess of our, you know, willingness to rebuke and to speak with one another in difficult and hard ways, taking rebuke seriously, perhaps. But I'm actually going to suggest this evening that apart from some pretty targeted directions that are giving toward, given towards church leaders particularly, the Scriptures themselves prove far more, provide far more reasons to exercise caution in rebuking others than it provides encouragement to rebuke others. That's what we're going to reflect on and try and figure out today. Of course, the Scriptures also say that rebuke isn't the only kind of speech that we can resort to when difficulties arise. There are other kinds of speech that perhaps are more appropriate, and we'll finish our time together reflecting on that as well. Uh, let's begin, though, uh, in the Old Testament. There's no book of the Bible that speaks more about rebuke and correction than the book of Proverbs. In fact, Proverbs speaks about rebuke at least as twice as often as any other book of the Bible. But even Proverbs uses, urges pretty particular caution about when we should rebuke and to whom rebuke should be offered. Up on the screen are going to pop a couple of verses that we'll work through. Uh, the Pro book of Proverbs says that we need to learn how to read the room, carefully to read the room when it comes to reflecting on who we should rebuke and when. 
have a look with me at chapter 9, verse 7 to 8, which the verse will be up on the screen. There the writer of Proverbs says, Whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise and they will love you. And then a little bit later in the book of Proverbs from chapter 27, better is the open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Book of Proverbs says, don't rebuke a mocker. Don't rebuke the wicked. And there's good reason to heed this advice that Proverbs is giving us. See, words of rebuke, and we'll see this repeated several times as on our way through this evening, are to be directed towards the wrongdoer's good, to facilitate their ultimate restoration, to restore relationship with the one who has done the foolish or the wrong thing. And if a person is unlikely to actually receive our rebuke as either the gift of a friend or the nurturing guidance of a parent, then there is precious little point to offering it. Why is it that on those few occasions that we do rebuke, do we tend to rebuke? Well, friends, I don't think it should be simply because we need to get something off our chest. That is not why we rebuke. We don't rebuke simply to clear the air for our own peace of mind. We don't rebuke simply because we wish to clear our own conscience so that once we have said our piece about someone else's wrongdoing, we can just wash our hands of the matter, forget them, have nothing more to do with them. That is never the the motivation for offering rebuke or correction of speech. Rebuke fired off quickly by an SMS text or electronically or just dumped at the feet of someone, never again to be followed up gently in conversation that kind of speech is almost certainly more about alleviating our own anxieties, more about signalling our own offence at something than it is about actually restoring a wayward brother or sister. That's what rebuke is for, if it's used. So when considering the practice of rebuke, we'd be doing very well to first carefully read the room. Proverbs enjoins us to offer rebuke only where our words will be likely received as the gentle wounds of a friend or as the nurturing discipline of a parent. And in fact, if you read the book of Proverbs, rebuke almost only ever happens either in the context of friendship or in the context of a parent-child relationship. And for good reason. Offered outside those two spheres of friendship and parental intimacy there's an increasing likelihood that we'll simply be inviting insult or incurring abuse. Uh, In the Old Testament book of Job, you might be familiar with this uh, book from the Old Testament in which Job's friends uh, spend a good amount of the book offering Job rebukes for his behaviour, what they imagine were Job's moral and spiritual failings. The final chapter of the book, chapter 42, God describes these speculative accusations that have been pointed against Job as actually being lies against God himself. We can offer rebuke, at least giving the implication that we are speaking God's words. The book of Job says beware about that. The New Testament book of Jude, one you probably have never read, it's 
it's only one chapter long, it notes the hesitancy of even the archangel Michael himself to even rebuke the devil. You think that if you ever, one person's ever going to rebuke another, you'd be on pretty good ground to expect the archangel Michael to rebuke Satan and not feel too uncertain about whether he was doing the right thing. But even the archangel Michael was hesitant and said, the Lord rebuke you to Satan. See, friends, to launch words of rebuke against others too quickly runs the danger that we'll end up shooting our mouths off about things that we simply don't fully understand. Uh, Even Jesus almost never is said to rebuke another. He rebukes the winds and the waves. He rebukes the sick. He rebukes Satan. He rebukes illness. He rebukes evil spirits. But he's only said to rebuke humans twice. Once, when he rebukes Peter, do you remember what he said then? Get behind me, Satan. The other occasion in which he rebukes his disciples, when they say to him, hey, Jesus, that Samaritan village didn't like much what we had to say. Can you bring down fire and sulfur and brimstone and wipe them out? And Jesus rebukes them then. Even Jesus himself often spoke in other ways other than direct rebuke. Think even, though, of Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus expresses particular caution about us rebuking others. There, Jesus said, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrites! First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. At stake here in Jesus' words is the credibility of any rebuker or correcting speech that we might think to offer another person. Jesus isn't suggesting that you have to be perfect, you have to have yourself fully sorted out before you ever say something to another person, but rather that we only address the failings of others in proportion to the sober seriousness with which we are aware of and attentive to our own failings. Our own failings should loom larger in our own vision than the failings of others. Uh, I wonder if you've ever had the experience of having floaters uh, creep across your vision. Uh, Floaters are those little things, like especially if you're looking at a white wall or a really clear blue sky, and it seems like a bit of dust is floating across your vision. I don't know if you've ever had that experience, a really minor thing. Now, like, I am not a doctor. Don't take any medical advice from me, right? But I did do the the Dr. Google thing uh, today, and uh, and it said that it's it's usually not a significant problem unless there's perhaps a a big increase in the number of little floaters. But imagine you do go to the doctor and you bring your concerns about your eyesight up with them, and they start giving you advice, even while they themselves have untreated cataracts on their own eyes. If I'm inattentive to my own issues, what confidence would others have that I have much to say of insight into their relatively minor issues? If I'm inattentive to the existence of greed in my own life, I'll likely offer very poor diagnosis of any greed that I think I perceive in the life of another person. Notice Jesus' assumption is that we absolutely will address the specks in the eyes of others, the blindness that others might have about their own sin, 
It's just that we'll only do so in proper proportion to the clarity that we have about our own self-acknowledged failings and shortcomings. Where we are unwilling to listen to or even act upon our own advice, we'll risk making a mockery out of any rebuke or corrective speech that we dare to offer to another. Uh, the person who's got pretty poor self-awareness will usually rebuke others in a pretty self-interested and self-justifying way. Perhaps you've even noticed that before. And it's neither wise nor a virtue to accept rebuke from such a short-sighted person who can't see their own shortcomings. Beware. So, the overwhelming weight of Scripture leans in the direction of expressing significant caution about launching into rebuke or corrective speech to others around about us. And yet there certainly does seem to remain a place for some kind of corrective speech in the way in which we deal with each other, doesn't there? Think about the, the passage from Matthew chapter 18 that was read for us earlier. If you flick your Bible shut, please do open that up again. Uh, there's actually no mention of the word rebuke in this passage, although when it comes to the situation where people might be asked to leave the church community, you might say that something like that is uh, an act, a speech of rebuke. But Jesus here is specifically addressing his own disciples, those who exercise uh, authority in the church community, and he begins by saying in the early parts of the chapter, make sure those who are vulnerable, those who are little in faith, make sure you don't cause them to stumble. Make sure that you don't let them walk away from the community of faith. Because Jesus says, you cause one of these little ones to stumble, it'd be better if you had a millstone tied around your neck. And those ones who are wandering like sheep, wandering away like sheep, they have angels in heaven who are constantly attentive to them. You beware how you treat them. And then Jesus goes on to speak about dealing with those who might sin within the church community. And yet, friends, this is not a one, two, three step guide to the practicing of our own personal rebuke of others. For any just old kind of correcting of any old sin that we happen to spot in one another. I wonder if you notice, right at the end of verse 17, we'll get to in a minute, we see there that Matthew 18 is about addressing the kind of sin or pattern of life that is serious enough to possibly exclude someone from the church community. This is a serious kind of thing that Jesus is addressing, not just how to address any kind of thing that someone does to perhaps wrong or offend us. And even in a situation as extreme as this, deliberate caution is urged. Have a look with me at the first verse, uh, chapter, chapter 18, verse 15. Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established. Oh, sorry, I've gone on too far there. I meant to finish at the end of verse 15. Uh, if they listen to you, you've won the brother or sister over. Now, what this is pointing out is that any instinctive move to publicly rebuke another or to openly condemn another's failure should be carefully and deliberately avoided, if at all possible. Where a wrongdoing can be humbly corrected or pointed out, person to person, face to face, then, friends, a rebuke might never need to be offered at all. I think that's what verse 15 is really getting at. 
As an aside, there are some occasions when keeping a sin just between the two of you, just between you and the offender, is not a wise course of action. Uh, if you, as we get into some of these difficult situations, if you've got questions, uh, you're more than welcome to ask them via the QR code at the bottom of the sermon outline, uh, or perhaps grab me after the service, and I'll be more than happy to chat further. But particularly when it involves the grievous sin of church leaders, such a rebuke should not be simply a private and hidden matter. Such a rebuke should, from the start, be delivered publicly, not kept simply private. Uh, and if you have a look at, we won't look at it this evening, but 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 to 20, uh, outlines that the, the failings of church leadership need to be dealt with in a far more open and accountable way than just going to someone and dealing with it one-on-one, privately. And friends, if either at this church or anywhere else, particularly Anglican churches, there is behaviour that is carried out by church leaders, by church staff, then there are people that you can go to to speak to in order to address that wrongdoing openly so that it's not just left between you and that person who usually has quite significant power and pull. You can go and speak to our local bishop. There's also a a body called the Professional Standards Unit, PSU. Uh, Their contact details will be up on the screen after the service and you can go and speak to them and they'll ensure that any wrongdoing is addressed in an open and transparent kind of way. But perhaps even where the offender, the person who has done something wrong, has got a track record of manipulative dealing with others, or has got a defensive tendency to blame shift, maybe back to the person uh, who's complaining, or even the the tendency to victimise those who point out their patterns of sin, then it's not advisable to keep it just between the two of you. Far better in such a case to jump straight to step two. Have a look with me, verse 16, where I kind of overread into a few moments ago. Verse 16. It says, But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Jesus is here quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 19. It's a passage that's dealing with especially serious crimes and wrongs uh, and situations in which people are likely to maliciously lie and to distort the truth, especially when there are disputes or conflicts. And both the integrity of the accusations and the witnessing the response of the accused person is of significant importance, a significant importance at this point. Because the kind of sin that Jesus is addressing here is one that is likely to have very serious consequences if the accusations prove correct. Have a look with me at verse 17. Verse 17. If this person who has done the wrong, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan, an unbeliever, or a tax collector. It's clear from the way that Jesus' advice ends there, isn't it, that this passage is about addressing the kind of sin or pattern of life that is serious enough to perhaps exclude someone from membership amongst God's people. 
Jesus isn't just giving us here a general flow chart, you know, to stick up on your wall and to follow this pattern of behavior anytime someone does something that offends you or you feel like wrongs you in some small or minor way. It's not about how we deal with every day, every kind of grievance between ourselves and another believer. If you want a worked example of the kind of situation Jesus has in mind, then have a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We looked at it last year where there was a man who was sleeping with his mother-in-law in the church community, and he was boasting about it. And Jesus calls the Corinthian church, given this man has refused to change his behavior, to put him out of fellowship so that he might be humbled. But if you read ahead to, chapter, uh, to 2 Corinthians, the second letter to the Corinthian church, you'd see in chapter 2 that Paul says, once he has humbled himself, they are to draw him back into fellowship, into community. Rebuke, even the most challenging kinds of rebuke, are to be done in a way to bring restoration and reconciliation ultimately where it's possible. The pattern of rebuke that Jesus is speaking here is focused on addressing the kind of behaviour that might conceivably spread like yeast throughout a community or might disqualify the wrongdoer from even membership amongst God's people. And our ultimate concern is for even the most stubborn offender to be fully restored to church community with as few barriers and obstacles as possible. And friends, the more quickly we rush to harsh rebuke, then the more difficult it's likely going to be to be able to affect reconciliation with that person should they humble themselves further down the track. Especially should our rebuke prove either unnecessary because they're willing to recognise their wrong straight away, or perhaps because our accusation, our rebuke, ends up being proving unfounded in the end. It's striking, actually, that in the New Testament, there is no direct encouragement for Christian believers in general to be practising rebuke as a regular matter, of course. Only those who serve as overseers of churches are actually given a direct exhortation or direction to administer rebuke of others. And even then, even for the overseers, it's only one of four patterns of speech that they have the duty to perform in church life. I'm going to very quickly skim through this because uh, this evening we're focusing on our own dealings with one another, not just the pattern of church leaders, but next year we're going to come back and look at 1 Timothy uh, together as a church and reflect in a bit more detail about what is expected of church leadership and church overseers. But in 2 Timothy chapter 3, we read that church overseers are to teach, rebuke, correct and train in righteousness. Notice that rebuke is only one of the kinds of speech that they are to speak. And all the other three, teaching, correcting, training in righteousness, are proactive, positive, building up kinds of speech. Rebuke is the only one that is to be there to say, you are wrong, you have crossed a line, you are condemned. Uh, Chapter two, uh, sorry, oh, chapter four, sorry, of 2 Timothy also reads this way. Uh, directed once again to church leadership specifically, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Notice that even for those who do have the authority to rebuke, 
They are to do it with great patience, with careful instruction. Rebuke isn't something that ever should be fired off from the hip, you know, on a moment's inspiration. It's part of a very patient and considered and careful pattern of speech, speaking and instructing, correcting and teaching and training. And then Titus chapter 2 verse 25 says that it is church overseers who are to rebuke and encourage and exhort with authority. They have a particular authority to rebuke. And I think that's why, actually, if you remember the book of James, chapter 3 of James says that not many people should presume to be teachers, that is, overseers of the church, because in their speech, they often enact a judgment that they will be held accountable for how they do it. To declare God's word to others comes with the risk of speaking wrongly in God's name. And teachers, overseas, church leadership should tremble at the thought that that is an authority that's been entrusted to them. Now, I don't think that this means that none of those verses have any relevance to us. Uh, They do. But it is sobering that the command to rebuke is never given to general Christian believers specifically. That should give us pause for thought before we jump into doing it at a moment's notice. So then, what about the rest of us? Simply avoiding hard conversations is never going to be an option if we as a community genuinely love one another. The Scripture's warnings against rebuking too quickly must not become a free pass to absolve ourselves from addressing one another's behaviour altogether. Where other forms of speech are still available to us, They should always be our first port of call rather than rebuke. Even for church leadership, for those like Timothy, who do have the authority to rebuke, they should prefer other forms of speech first. Uh, Have a look at these verses. uh, Addressed to Timothy, who almost performed the role of kind of like a bishop. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul instructs him, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Where there is a chance of first exhorting, urging, encouraging, persuading someone to pursue a better course of behaviour or life, that is by far preferable than jumping to rebuke. And the truth is, friends, this is true, isn't it? We're almost never going to be faced with a situation in which we simply have to choose between either rebuking sin or completely ignoring it altogether. They're never going to be our only two options that are at our disposal. Most of the time, we'll first have plenty of opportunity to graciously urge people to pursue greater righteousness before we need to declare their behaviour wrong and condemned. Or have a read of Colossians chapter 3. We looked at this verse a few weeks ago, where Paul does encourage general believers, clothe yourselves with compassion kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, they're all virtues that should almost always predispose us to leaning towards forbearance, that is, pressing into patiently bearing with each other's failings, wherever we are able to do so. Not every sin 
and every failure needs to ultimately be labelled as guilty or innocent as a judgment. Rebuke is never to be resorted to simply because it eases our own annoyance, like a, you know, a release valve, a frustration. It's never to be given or delivered simply because it puts someone in their place, because it's a relief to have simply spoken our mind or because it allows us to move on quickly from an otherwise uncomfortable and difficult situation. Indeed, often it's only once we've walked a long-suffering path with someone of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience that will earn the kind of trust required to successfully carry off a rebuke of their behaviour if it's absolutely necessary. Now, I know that I've just, I've just taken us through a whole range of different verses, a lot of it technical, little distinctions, all the rest, a bit overwhelming. It's a little bit difficult to avoid. But actually, uh, this evening, what I'd rather leave you with is not any further advice about how you might deliver a rebuke or correction, but rather a few thoughts on how you might personally receive rebuke or correction. Can I encourage you, seek out, as one of life's most precious treasures, that kind of friend from whom you can receive even wounding words as a gift of love from them to you. Brothers and sisters, there is no pastor or mentor, there is no parent or therapist, there is not even a husband or a wife that can bless us more than the kind of friend whose words of rebuke we're able to receive with peace and joy and gratitude. Friends, if you find such a person from whom you can openly receive rebuke, then pray every day that you are never foolish enough to despise their words of correction if they offer them to you. Practice receiving rebuke and correction from them every chance that you get so that they might be emboldened to speak those words to you when you most need to hear them. I reckon that most of the time, let me just speak for myself and then you can see if it fits for you as well. We instead practice defending ourselves. That's how we practice responding when someone says something difficult to us. But friends, if you practice that with those who are loving and trustworthy in the words of correction that they offer to you, you will be so deeply impoverishing yourself. Practice receiving with gratitude even the slightest hint of correction that they might offer you, so that when you really need it, they will be willing to offer it. And of course, I've been speaking a lot this evening about our speech with others and others' responses to our speech. But of course, there is actually one person whose words of rebuke we should be eager to receive without even a hint of anxiety or defensiveness. And if there's one thing that you take away from this evening, then let it be this reminder. These are Jesus' own words from Revelation chapter 3. Jesus says, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. 
Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. I wonder if you notice a couple of things about Jesus' words of rebuke here to the church, to us. First of all, Jesus' words of rebuke and his love are one and the same. When Jesus speaks words of rebuke, there is no corner of that rebuke that is not an expression of his heartfelt love and care towards us. To refuse his words of rebuke is to refuse his love. Lord, have mercy, don't let us shut our ears to those words that he speaks. Secondly, Jesus calls us to respond with eagerness to the words of rebuke and discipline that he speaks to us, to embrace them. Why would we? Normally, if someone speaks the words of, of rebuke to us, at our best, we'll receive them graciously and then we'll go away and steam and simmer and grumble uh, and try and avoid that person so they don't see how we really feel for the coming weeks that follow on after it. Why would we respond with eagerness to Jesus' words of rebuke? Well, it's that next verse that he speaks. For Jesus speaking of rebuke, his discipline is in order that it might deepen our fellowship with him and his fellowship with us. That he might come in and eat with us and we might eat with him. It's this expression of the closest intimacy of friends enjoying openness over a meal together. Friends, I wonder if you could ask yourselves, if ever someone perhaps doesn't quite respond to words of encouragement or rebuke or exhortation, if they don't respond quite the way you might have hoped, maybe we could ask ourselves, was a deepened fellowship with that person what we were really pursuing when we spoke those words of exhortation or rebuke or encouragement? Or were we just trying to get something else off our chest instead? Or maybe even better, maybe we could ask that question before we offer any words of rebuke or correction. Is a deepened fellowship with this person what we eagerly desire to see come about as its fruit? Because even the Lord Jesus only spoke words of rebuke that we might answer the door and he might come in and eat with us and we with him. How wonderful that even the hardest speech that Jesus might speak to us might result in that kind of deepened fellowship. How about we pray that whatever kind of speech it is that we might speak with one another might have the same ultimate goal and result as well. Let's pray. Our dearest Father, our relationships with one another are amongst the most precious things that you have graciously seen fit to give us and yet, Father, they also cause us the most deep grief and pain, bitterness, hurt, fear, anxiety. Father, we do ask that your spirit would strengthen us as no human will can do, to cancel the debt that others owe us, to forgive where we're wronged. Father, where we have wronged others, give us the humility to recognise in confession and sorrow to seek to make good wherever it's possible, to repent and change our whole pattern of living following after it. And Father, in all the words that we speak to one another, may it be a deepened 
fellowship and intimacy that we are moved by when we open our mouths to speak. And Father, we pray that that deep intimacy might also be the fruit of any time when we do speak words of correction or exhortation to one another. We ask this in Jesus' name, so deeply thankful that that is how he speaks and acts towards us. Amen. Uh, Friends, please feel free.